This is Senator Cheryl Kagan, District 17, Montgomery County, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, your best go-to source for news and insight on Maryland policy and politics. Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson and Natasha Mayhew. Natasha, how are you today? Doing good. And Michael, how are you today? Fine as wine. Excellent. Today on the podcast, we are going to discuss the race for speaker, and we'll look at a handful of bills that are potential vetoes from Governor Hogan. Natasha and Michael, let's start with just the mood around town. We had services for Speaker Bush this week. There was a procession through town, a lot of remembrance, a lot of signs being put up, and We saw a really interesting uh, piece in the Washington Post, Michael, they were asking for stories um, with the speaker, and you actually got published, and you actually got the headline. Talk a little (laughs) bit about that story. Well, I I mean, it was, to me, it was a a perfect Mike Bush moment, and I mean, it's a little bit personal as well as professional, but I thought it was a good illustration of the kind of guy he was, and this is what everybody has been saying for the last week and a half, that you know, he was a really committed leader and a really serious policy guy and so forth, and I felt like this story of mine was also a little bit different light. I, you know, around 10 years ago, I got lucky enough to be selected for this job as director at Mako. I had been working here doing policy work and, and became the executive director. And the speaker, as he had usually done, he was at the Mako conference as a speaker and a guest. He was on one of our panels. We do a forecast of each legislative session, and we usually have legislative leadership as part of that. So he had been there for the conference and he's getting ready to drive back to Annapolis and ask if, if I'd be willing to grab lunch. So like suddenly I'm I'm like on this job for literally just a few days. And now you're on the spot. And now it's like 45 minutes like face to face with the speaker, like not with the team, not with his staff, just like me and him. I, I don't have any notes. I'm not, you know it's I mean I'm 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 game to do it of course, but potentially I'm like I don't know what am I going to say if he asks about this complicated bill that's not my subject area. I'm going to get it's high pressure. Know, right. Yeah, right. So <laughs> Anyway, so, you know, we, we sit down and, you know, have, have a bowl of crab soup or whatever and we start to talk and, and so I do a little of the lobbying stuff and I'm, you know, mentioning, you know, Mako's really worried about our transportation issue or we've got this, you know, local funding thing or we're, we're worried about a land use problem. What, I don't even remember what the issues were, but I start like going into, you know, the, the typical policy luncheon sort of thing and, He's polite, but I can tell that that's not really what he wants to talk about. Right, right. And so, so basically, he wants to talk about, so like, you're new in this job, and that's going to be really great for you. And, you know, you're going to do good work for the counties, and I'm optimistic about that. And I'm thinking, okay, this is really nice. And then we end up spending almost the whole time talking about being dads, that he was, Mm -hmm. he was relatively late. 
to being, you know, to being a parent right. himself. And I was in the same spot. So I had my first daughter at the time and I was just getting her into preschool. And suddenly we're talking about, it turns out the preschool I was sending my daughter at the time was the same place he had sent his daughters. And we have a big conversation mm. about that. Exchanging but, notes. And right. Such, and, right. but like, but he's, he's totally that guy. Like you can tell, you can tell when you're having a conversation with somebody and they're, just sort of along for the ride. So as I'm talking about, here's the Mako bill and the thing we want to do, and he's nodding and paying some degree of attention, and that's fine. It's going well. But once we're talking about kids, he is all in. Right. I mean, he's he, he's he can't wait to interject, and he's given me guidance, and he says, you know, don't lose these times, and make sure you keep time for that family. This this kind of work can swallow you up. Don't let that happen. Be a dad and stuff. And oh my gosh, and so that's like super super you know meaningful. It's a little bit personal, but you know, in this moment, it just seemed like. That's my best reflection of Mike Bush. I, I respected everything about him as a speaker and as a politician. But, I mean, the way I put it in, in the piece, which made it in the headline in the post, is like, what a coach. What right? a coach. <laughs> yeah. right. And we've heard that that same sentiment from so many people. You know, they, they do policy work, but at the end of the day, he cared about the person, the person's family, um, you know, how they're doing in their life. And, and I think that's a reflection. And, again, we've heard that so many times. Right, really the about the relationships, mm-hmm. making those connections with everyone in town. So the services, I mean, there were a lot of people in town, um, very nice tributes to Speaker Bush. But that sets us up for a policy conversation here about what happens now in the House of Delegates. And, Michael and Natasha, it is official. We have a three-way race for the Speaker of the House We have Maggie McIntosh. She is, of course, the chair of the Appropriations Committee. She has been a member of the General Assembly since 1992. She's from Baltimore City. Prior to appropriations, she also chaired the Environment and Transportation Committee, which was then known as the Environmental Matters Committee. Uh, We have Derek Davis. He is the chair of the Economic Matters Committee. He's been in the General Assembly since 1995. He represents Prince George's County. Speaker Bush was also the former chair of Economic Matters. And then we have Adrian Jones, who is the Speaker Pro Tem. She's represented Baltimore County since 1997. She is a member of the Appropriations Committee. Three candidates here. You know, what do we see? What's the timeline? How do we move forward? Well, I mean, the, the one thing I guess has been semi-announced, this is a little quirky. I mean, it showed up in a, in one of the newspapers. I think the Baltimore Sun carried a piece that made sort of passing mention that they had targeted the 1st of May as a day for a brief legislative special session for the House to, to basically install their new leadership. So that's the timetable we're all sort of working around. Um, we haven't seen a formal announcement and there's, there's different ways to call a special session. So we haven't seen that set in stone, but everybody's kind of working backwards, assuming May 1st is the timetable here. Uh, meanwhile, you know, right now things are informal. Right. And that's that's how this stuff tends to work is that there's phone calls and so forth happening. That, so, uh, you know, the House is trying to sort out the direction it wants to head. So we talked you talked about May 1st being the date that they may come in. We know the House has to select a new speaker, but the Senate has to come in as well. Correct. Right. So both chambers would have to convene for a special session of the General Assembly. So you at least gavel in. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a couple quirks with that. So that means the Senate has to come to town. And in theory, both chambers are open for business. You could have bills introduced. We've seen that in, in the past. I mean, back in 2007, 
there was a special session with a, a major budget crisis. And, and this was like, this was not the one day single issue sort of thing, but a, a special session called and it ended up going on for three or four weeks, as I recall. Uh, but when they had that special session, individual members of the House and Senate just started putting in bills. So when the General Assembly is in session, you can introduce legislation. So, I mean, leadership can sort of frown on it and you can say, hey, there's not going to be process. We're not going to hold hearings on bills. But in theory, the body itself has convened. And if you want to walk down to the bill drafting office and have House Bill 1 drafted and it's something or another that you couldn't get done in the 19 special session – in theory, the doors are open. In practice, probably not, right? But if they're all in town, that means other business can be done as well, right. like right. veto override. Right. So that's that's the biggest twist here is under the Constitution, the General Assembly has to take up the potential override of governor's veto at its first either general or special session following the governor's decision to veto a bill. So we're in a weird timeline with May 1st as the date that the governor has longer than that to decide what to do with bills that were passed late in the legislative session. Right. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about some of these issues um, that seem like candidates that the governor may look at and may be considering a veto. Um, he has two ways to go here. One would be to do a veto quickly and sort of allow the legislature to have this debate on the 1st of May. I'm not sure that's what I'm not sure that's what the House of Delegates really would like to do. Right, right. That would certainly throw a wrench in things, right. you would think. But the, the alternative would be the governor waits till after the special session, if there is one, and then makes his decision sometime you know, in the month of May. And then unless something else happens before the end of the year, you would see the legislature not come back till January. And that's when they would take up possible veto overrides. So we'll get into potential uh, vetoes on the back half of this episode. But let's talk about what we're hearing. Natasha, uh, Chair McIntosh says that she has more than half of the House Democrats and that she's looking to hold on until the House reconvenes for a special session to select the next speaker, right? So, I mean, what what are you hearing about what she has and, and what who has pledged their support to, to Delegate McIntosh? Yeah, so what we're hearing there is that she has the majority of Democrats, um, maybe 60 or more, um, and uh, support from the young progressive, progressive Democrats in multiple jurisdictions. So that's out of 99, right? So, so right. I mean, you need 50 to have a majority of the Democratic caucus. So if she's talking about numbers of having – you know, 50 pledged or 60 soft or some, you know, some number in that area that sounds like, um, Madam Chair McIntosh may be in a position to control the Democratic caucus, uh, which ordinarily means that's the conversation, right? right. So, yeah, and, and, and she, she's, I mean, to get there, she definitely has to have, um, support from multiple jurisdictions. It's not, this isn't the 1940s when Baltimore City, you know, wielded so much disproportionate power politically in the General Assembly. Uh, she can have support in Baltimore, but you need more than even just the strict Baltimore region to carry the state. Right. And we know uh, Chairman Davis is counting votes. I think he's declined to say what exactly he thinks his vote count is at this point. But we know that he's meeting with members. He's listening to their concerns brushing up on all the matters that the issues that matter to them in their home districts. And then, you know, pro tem Jones, she's done a fantastic job 
filling in for Speaker Bush yeah, during no, his no, absence. No, mm-hmm. no doubt about that. Right. I mean, I everybody she, uniformly felt like, wow, she, I mean, she, she spent a lot of time, at, you know, at the gavel this session in particular with the Speaker's health issues. Uh, but over the last few years, she's, she's had a higher profile in that role. And, I think I don't think anybody gives her anything but top marks for managing the floor and being respectful during debate. I mean, that's it's an underappreciated part of being speaker, just having an ear for when is it time to wrap up the conversation, when is it time to let people have their say, and things like that. It's and, a skill for sure. Yeah. So I mean, I mean, she's had. I mean, she's had practice for for lack of a better word mm-hmm. at, at taking that role from time to time serving in that role for a number of years uh but the last couple of years i think she's really she's shown her chops so it's natural for her to be in the conversation her 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 formal announcement of being interested in the job was kind of quirky though right um we so, hadn't really heard her mention any interests you know up till up until she was you know, after Speaker Bush had just passed away. And I think there was some talk about she might not be interested. She doesn't want to do it. So you don't need to think about uh, pro tem Jones being interested in this role. It's it, it's a tough situation, right? I mean, for the last several years, I, I think there have been whispers in the breeze with people saying, well, at some point there's going to be a change of leadership in, in both chambers. So, you know, who would be the people who are positioned well to potentially be a successor as president of the Senate or speaker of the house? And that's independent of health issues or, and so forth. It's just, you know, it's just a, a natural consideration with two veteran leaders. So, you know, the, the health circumstances with the speaker maybe accelerated that conversation to some degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, I, I don't know. I think it's a judgment about, what do you say? I mean, is that, you know, do you say I'm really interested in being speaker when the time comes? Does, is that a proper way to announce an ambition or does that look untoward? You know, that are, you know, you don't, it's a you tough don't, spot. right, right. So anyway, so the speaker pro tem comes out right after the session and says, yeah, I really wasn't planning to do anything until we'd done the proper process. We finished the legislative session and, and we, you know, maybe get through the services for Speaker Bush and so forth. But she gets her name in there. And some people said, well, you're late to the party. Mm-hmm. And we know, you know, behind the scenes, I think the other two candidates perhaps have been lobbying other members for, you know, a few years now. They've had receptions and they're just kind of throwing their hat in the ring for when that time ultimately comes. And the time is, has come. But what now is going on behind the scenes? I mean, are there just meetings and phone calls and lobbying? I mean, what what is happening at this point? Well, I mean, I think there's a lot that can influence this race. And, you know, we talked about earlier um, about some of the caucuses and what positions they could have. Um, but we know there are 98 um, Dems in the House and you need 71 votes. So all those caucuses are in play. Um, Black caucus, 45 members, all Democrats. Um, they haven't stated who their position is, uh, who they're going to vote for yet. Right. But 45 members in play there. And they're all Democrats. And then also we have to think about Republicans, right? And and you wouldn't typically think about this. We know the Democrats essentially rule the roost in the, in the House and the Senate. They have supermajorities. But Republicans could play a big 
role in selecting the next speaker? I mean, historically, and, and and again, like we don't, I mean, I don't know whether 2019, do you look back to 2003 or, you know, the things that happened in the nineties or the eighties or the seventies and say, well, that's really how Maryland does things. I don't know if you're beholden to tradition in any particular way, but historically the way this process would work in most places, most of the time would be the majority party, you know, sorts things out among the majority and then they vote as a block and they control this vote. So yeah, however this were to go down among these three candidates or if there's anybody else who ends up in the field and so forth, the Democrats would have their conversation. They would sort this out through the caucus and then they'd all walk out of the room saying, we're all voting for this candidate. Right. And, and that's, I mean, you know, that to the victor go the spoils. That's part of being a majority party in a legislative body is you want to retain that degree of leverage. Um, I, I don't know if, if, if you have the Republican party saying we're willing to vote for a Democrat, um, maybe based on some concessions in leadership or some, 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 you know, some more say into policy guidance or who knows what. Uh, then in theory, you could have members of the Democratic caucus saying, well, if my candidate isn't the selection of the, of the majority party, could we still cobble together a coalition? Could we get, you know, 40 Democrats and, and 40 some Republicans? And now we've got enough to elect a different speaker than the Democratic caucus might come up with. And I mean, cards on the table, that probably would be Delegate Davis. Right. And talk about, so, so <laughs> House Minority Leader Kipke has said, the Republicans do plan to vote as a block, and that does give them some power there. But why do you say that that would that would favor Delegate Davis here and, and instead of McIntosh or Jones? Well, one thing we know, and I think, I mean, you two both do work in their respective committees. Uh, both Chair McIntosh and Chair Davis have really loyal followers on their committee. They are both very well respected and very admired by their committee rank and file. And I think, I think you would probably say both parties, even, even the minority party members of those two committees feel that the committees are run well, that they're treated fairly, they get their fair shake and so forth. But so it wouldn't, you know, it's, it's not a surprise that people who excel in the role of committee chair are in this conversation for the sort of short list of who might be the presiding officer for the whole body. Right. So, okay, there's a, there's potentially a coalition of people who would support Derek Davis. Um, we mentioned the Black Caucus. Uh, he's African American and it would be enticing, I'm sure, to some members of the Black Caucus to have a first black presiding officer in the Maryland General Assembly. So you, you can't overlook that as a factor. Uh, we hear he doesn't necessarily have uniform support within the Black Caucus, but that is a faction that you would think he would draw some support from as well as his own committee members. And that's 45 members. I mean, that's a big block. It's a, me it's a meaningful number. And even if, even if we say, we, you know, the, what we hear publicly is that that's not a, it's not a unanimous vote. So they're not a block, mm -hmm. but I don't know. Does he have potentially 30? Right. And I mean, if you have, if you have 30 votes within that caucus, then that is a meaningful chunk. If you have 30 or 33 from that caucus plus 40 some from the Republican bloc, that right there is enough to elect a speaker. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that, I mean, the math isn't that complicated to get there. And that's before you get into, I think, 
a lot of business interests are before economic matters. And even while that committee has passed some things that, you know, the, the, the minimum wage bill from this year and, and other labor things over recent years have been frustrating to the business community. I think the, I think Chairman Davis has, has uh, represented the business community pretty pretty well and admirably. Barely, yeah. Th- through these debates, so he's probably got supporters in that community. If you're a centrist Democrat or sort of a pro growth or pro business Democrat, he may be a candidate more to your liking philosophically uh, than than Delegate McIntosh. Delegate McIntosh certainly more progressive. Uh, we know that she is. A budget hawk on that appropriations committee. They they do great work. She they had the budget this year first. They sent it over to the Senate. So high profile issues for both of them. And and what do you need to do to convince Republicans to vote for you? I mean, we know that their block is on the line. They've said we have all these votes and we're going to push them in one direction. What would you be doing behind the scenes right now to to try and get them on board? <laughs> Well, I think some of the things in play there are uh, the speaker assigns committee chairs and vice chairs and um, sets who's going to sit on the committee. So that there's certainly um, some things to sway in that regard. Right. I mean, you have to think that that leadership roles – I mean, Maryland has a lengthy history of the Democratic Party controls both chambers of the legislature, super majorities. So that's that's the hand we've been dealt for as long as any of us have been doing this kind of work and well before that. But it doesn't necessarily have to be uniform blue leadership. You could you could theoretically have a subcommittee with a Republican chair. You could have a Republican vice chair of one committee or of all committees, or you could have a Republican chair of a committee. Right. Uh, so, I mean, I mean, all those things could theoretically be on the table. Um, I mean, it's it's a little bit like, you know, these countries that that have a parliamentary form of government. You know, mm-hmm. you're the highest mm-hmm. vote getter and then you start reaching around for how do you build blocks to have a coalition? They're doing it in Israel right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, this happens you know worldwide. In theory, you could see the same kind of thing in the Maryland House of Delegates where suddenly, you know, you have a Republican chair of economic matters replaces, you know, Derek Davis. If he were to become speaker, maybe you have a Republican chair there. I mean, who knows? I mean, right. we're gonna, this is an inside baseball. It's just, you know, just trying to connect the dots of how this sort of thing could come together. So we do know that either way, this will be historic. As every previous speaker has been a white man, we have two African-American candidates, two women, and one openly gay candidate. So this will be historic either way you cut it. Um, And I think it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. Yeah, very. No doubt about that. So back to, to May 1st. That quirky timing, if, if that's really what they hold up to, I mean, that, that ends up, you know, affecting everything, I guess. Yes, especially decisions to veto legislation for the governor, and uh, we'll have to see what he does there as well. Mark your calendars, everyone. Mark your calendars. <laughs> All right, with that, we'll go ahead and take a break. After the break, we will get into a little bit more about why the speaker is so important, and then we will talk about potential vetoes, all that and more after the break. The Local Government Insurance Trust is the primary source for Maryland local governments to get insurance coverage. When the private insurance market doesn't understand your needs and doesn't really want to be in the business of covering your law enforcement officers and other public employees, Legit will be there. That is exactly why Legit was created over 30 years ago. Legit is different. Legit is owned and managed by its local government members. That means that when we do well, you do well. Members get premium credits when the trust has a good year. And Legit offers training and best practices year-round. 
to make sure our members are doing their best with risk management. Competitive prices, outstanding service, and coverage that fits your needs as a local government. You can't beat legit for all your coverage needs. Find out more at lgit.org or drop by their exhibit space at the MML or MAKO conference. Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Natasha Mayhew and Michael Sanderson. So why do we care about who the speaker is? Why do we care so much? And I know back in 92, Michael, there, there's an interesting story here, but the speaker is very important. It's not just one vote. It's not just a body at the front of the room. I think that's I – I feel like you know, we're a little bit guilty of talking on and on about this and people in town spending so much time talking about Speaker Bush and his leadership – and then you know, we're dedicating time last week and this week on the podcast and lots of space in our blog and so forth to talking about the speaker. So why do we care so much? And I, I, th- I think you know, we've already mentioned a little bit about appointing chairs and, and things of that nature. So that's, that's part of it. It's, is that selecting a speaker is a way of signaling the direction of the whole body. But I mean, what does it mean to leadership? I, I, I was around in the early 90s when there was a challenge to the sitting spe- speaker, uh, Clay Mitchell from Kent County on the Eastern Shore, believe it or not, a Democrat from Kent County was the speaker of the House, um, but was, uh, you know, was in the midst of the early 90s were a really tough economic time. The state was in a pretty serious recession and that was lingering. And that usually means budget cutting and a lot of tough decisions. The 92 session was full of tough stuff with, you know, tax increases and cuts to local aid and other things like that. And then in the fall of 92, they had to do another round. It wasn't even enough. The big package of things in the spring of 92. Um, and, and without the benefit of a big lengthy debate, you end up with sort of a leadership guided decision. So what, what ended up happening in the fall of 92 was a, a big reduction in education aid. Believe it or not, as we're talking, you know, we're talking about <laughs> the Kerwin imagine. Commission. Not always education. Right. So, but, but, um, you know, support for education, uh, the, the big, issue was the state pulled the plug on its willingness to fund social security costs for teachers in public schools. Yeah, I can imagine and, that would create some waves. Yes. Yeah, well, it's, it's a big thing. And when you do that, suddenly it turns out, well, who got the most money for that? And it you know, just by the numbers are the big jurisdictions in the DC metro area. So it's Montgomery hmm. and Prince George's County have the biggest school systems and they have arguably the most competitive pay for their teachers. So social security is just a percent of your pay. Right. So the state contribution to a place like Montgomery was a great deal larger than other jurisdictions. So they lost the most. And when that column of numbers of who got, who got hit, whose schools hurt, Montgomery and Prince George's felt like they were singled out. They were, they lost too much. And you've got, you've got a speaker of the house from a rural part of the state. And there were people from the metro part saying, you know, this, we need better and more considerate leadership for our parts of the state. So there were quiet rumbles of maybe it's time for a new speaker. And 
you know, one thing leads to another and you end up with uh, a, a name we know, Nancy Kopp, uh, was in the House of Delegates at the time. Treasurer and she, and she's now the treasurer and she's moved on to a different role. But at the time, she was a, a member of the Appropriations Committee and a, you know, a strong fiscal person and so forth. And her name was sort of the, the word on the street of, you know, maybe Nancy Kopp will have the votes to become speaker. Well, without belaboring the story too much, um, yeah, this is a matter of people picking up the phones and the, the current speaker is picking up phones, calling members of the house and saying, okay, are you with me? I understand there's something going on. Are you with me? Are you with the other side? How's this working out? And the way you answer that phone call, when it turns out Speaker Mitchell had the votes to stay in place, mm-hmm. one thing is you don't announce a coup until you've got the votes to make the <laughs> exactly, coup, right? So, exactly. right. You don't, you don't say, hey, Caesar, look at all of us with our knives. You don't do that, right? <laughs> so, um, so as a practical matter, the, the would be, you know, overthrow of the speaker didn't happen. But if you were a delegate in a leadership role, particularly from Montgomery and Prince George's County, and when the speaker called you, you don't take the call or you said, I'm not sure or I'm on the other team. And it turns out that speaker survives and you find yourself no longer a subcommittee chair, no longer a committee vice chair. And suddenly your seat is down at the other end of the table. And one of your colleagues who answered that call with, I'm with you, Mr. Speaker, that person is now your boss. Loyalty matters. <laughs> right, right. right. And so, I mean, that's, that's, I mean, it's not like it's a military organization, but to some degree, you have to have a notion that the leadership can can exert influence over the body. And if a person isn't going to be there for the speaker, then the speaker wants to be working with lieutenants who are. So, you know, I mean, these things matter. Um, those of us who do policy work in Annapolis, it really matters who sits as chairs of the committee. We've talked about the ability of a, a chair or even a subcommittee chair to just put a bill in a drawer, not bring it up for a vote, and that effectively kills a bill. Yeah, they have a lot of discretion for how they run their committees, and that's, right. that is everything from how long you have to testify to right. what yeah. order <laughs> bills right. get called and, in. And and, and 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 we and on a certain level, a citizen might say, "Well, that sounds like it's an unaccountable process. Like one person can kill a bill. That's all wrong." Well, one of the ways the system fixes that is if the Speaker of the House doesn't like that a committee chair is is overusing the drawer or is not managing the committee appropriately, the speaker removes the chair exactly. or guides the chair in a new direction. This happens all the time. But again, that conversation starts at the top. The person who is selected the speaker of the house is going to matter an awful lot for people who care about Maryland policy for, you know, the balance of this term or probably the balance of his or her term as, as a speaker. And you know, we see, we see examples of this all the time. Right, right. I mean, for instance, um, even just a session with the prescription drug um, affordability board. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just an example of just one issue where there's a um, noticeable dis- dif- um, difference from those of us who do this policy work of when a bill has the backing of leadership. Absolutely. It's a leadership call versus when it's something that someone on a committee just introduced. Um, and, you know, in January, they called a press conference, and this was one of the um, topics that was mentioned, and it certainly grabbed our attention as this right. is an important bill. Leadership yeah. is yeah. there on the and bill. the speaker himself, as I recall, I mean, you know, right. in the middle of the photograph of that coverage of that press event. 
Yeah. Right. So, so I mean, the, the presiding officers obviously they matter an awful lot, and and I think the main takeaway here, all of this stuff is really you can't really teach it in a tenth grade civics class, but it's the reality on the ground and on the ground here in Annapolis. Large organizations generally have to work through leadership to get anything done to be effective, and legislatures are no exception. And that's not just here in Maryland; that's at the federal level, and that's every state. That's just the way it works. Sure, I think so. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've talked a lot about the speaker and why the speaker and that position is so important. Let's talk about, let's tie this in from the first half now to potential vetoes. We talked about the timing being weird, but let's talk about potential vetoes that the governor may want to, to carry out. So we know the governor's already vetoed the Fight for 15 legislation to allow school boards to decide when to start school instead of that requirement that they start after Labor Day. He vetoed a bill that would strip the comptroller of some of his authority and a bill that created uh, new oyster sanctuaries. All of those were swiftly overridden by the Maryland General Assembly. So but, it sort of sets up this dynamic that, right. I mean, we have a legislature, you know, that's dominated by one party. We have a governor from the different party. And so some of these issues they send to his desk, he vetoes basically knowing full well that they're going to go back and it's going to be an override. So he gets to make a statement and not necessarily guide the policy. I mean, we remember back to the election, the governor was really interested in trying to eliminate the veto-proof majority, particularly mm-hmm. in the Maryland Senate, for exactly this reason. Exactly. So, so he could defend the oyster, san- you know, oyster sanctuaries or, or the comptroller's provisions or all these other bills like that. Um, turns out, you know, they, they didn't, they didn't change the, the character, the, the character of the Senate enough to do that. And so many of these may turn into similar situations, although not all these votes were by lopsided margins. They weren't. And, and let's talk about some of these bills. The first one that we'll discuss is the repeal of the handgun review board. There was a lot of heated debate on this bill. This bill would shift appeals from the Maryland State Police. Uh, these are concealed carry permit decisions. So the, instead of the Maryland State Police deciding the appeals, it would be shifted to the state's Office of Administrative Hearings. And this is always one of uh, gun issues in general are hot topic issues. Um, it's it's one where, you know, when we're going to go testify, um, you're looking at the hearing schedule and seeing is this gun bill day, um, which really usually means is, hours. Like, uh, yeah, bring some food. Yes, exactly. Hours and hours and hours of, of contentious public hearings and really strong feelings on both sides. And if you, if you don't have a bill up that day, you just don't want to be in the committee rooms. Yeah. <laughs> you can watch online. Right. It's that, it's that kind of thing. I mean, the thing is, um, because this issue, even though nominally what this bill is about is a structure of government thing, you know, what agency or what process do you use if you want to appeal this decision from the state police, it traces back to appointments. And this really started with the governor appointing people to serve on this handgun permit review board. And the resolution, rather than just step on all the permit, uh, step on all the appointments was let's abolish the board itself. Um, so even though this isn't about appointments, everything with appointments becomes to some degree personal. Because yeah, every, and, mm-hmm. right, and, and I mean, this is, this is not R and D stuff necessarily, although gun issues usually are, but 
every time a governor issues a series of appointments, to some degree, it's like, this is a report, my name's on it, these are my people, and if you mess with my appointments, I'm taking that personally, I'm invested in these people doing this, these things. So this is, this is a bit of a power play, as well as being a gun issue. So is it possible the governor, like, sees it through that lens and takes it personally on those grounds? I mean, that's like an added nuance, in addition to being a gun issue, which is tricky, um, this governor is not noted for getting deeply involved in matters of controversial partisan policy. And right. almost everything with guns is controversial and partisan. Uh, does this break down that way? I don't know. So a lot of people will be watching this one. That'll be an interesting one. The next one is the statewide ban on polystyrene products. Polystyrene is a component that you have in styrofoam. So all these styrofoam boxes that you get with to-go food. So the interesting wrinkle here is that this legislation would take effect July 1st. It would give all restaurants, coffee shops, grocery stores, and other businesses that use these products a year to phase them out. Lots of people are saying this bill would hit small businesses especially hard, and that's something that always seems to irk the governor. Yeah, I mean, but the bill did have a, a number of carve-outs and exceptions, and um, a number of the large jurisdictions in the state have also done, um, passed something like this locally. Um, so uh, the biggest talking point on this bill now is that it would make Maryland the first to do so statewide. Yeah, yeah so it's unclear exactly what the governor um, might be thinking on this one. Next one, Clean Energy Jobs Act. We talked about this, I think, last week on the podcast. This bill would raise Maryland's renewable portfolio standard, which is the amount of renewable energy the state's electric utilities must use, to 50 percent by 2030. And I know I remember the last time an RPS bill crossed the governor's desk, which was in 2016, he vetoed it. The legislature overrode the veto the following year. And um, now the state's RPS is set at 25 percent. So the governor interested in sort of looking out for the rate payer and seeing this as as akin to a tax increase that if this is a policy goal, it's going to cost electric users money. And that means you know, on your home bill, but also for the electric bill of a company who wants to do business in Maryland. Right. Um, and, you know, last week we talked about um, a number of tweaks in the bill. This was one that um, kind of went down to the wire going back and forth, um, such as leaving in the waste to energy incinerators in the top tier and um, including a nuclear study. Um, so these things uh, might make the bill a bit less onerous um, and so therefore maybe less likely for the governor to veto it. I, I think it's interesting, Michael, when you, when you talked about – you know, the fact that he vetoed the 2016 bill because of the ratepayers, a lot of the debate on the floor in both the House and the Senate was about raising rates. Mm -hmm. And they were taking these these votes for amendments and they were asking for roll calls. And to me, that's always a signal that they want everybody to be on record so that mm -hmm. they can do something down the road. I think I think that's I think that's definitely true. I don't think this issue goes away. Um the the votes on this bill are a little bit slippery. I mean, we saw that weird – we talked about this at some length last week about how the Senate seemed to really prefer to leave the incinerators out of the top tier but then went along with that being in the final bill. If they get another bite at the apple, I mean, let's you know, let's play this out. Governor vetoes the bill after a special session and they have until next January to decide whether to override – the governor's veto on this exact bill, I, I'm not sure the exact same pressure is there like it was on the waning hours mm. of the session on the floor of the Senate. You might lose some votes on the Senate. It's it's possible they wouldn't have the votes to override even if they wanted to. 
And I mean, to Natasha's point that he may not even override this this or veto this bill. We know that the governor has been vocal about states doing their part to fight climate change, especially because Congress can't seem to get anything done at the federal level. So that's just another wrinkle here. I think there was an op-ed piece that he wrote uh, talking about climate change and the states needing to step up. And so, I mean, he, with 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 Governor Hogan as the as the leader of the sort of the multi-state group that looks at the Chesapeake Bay and so forth, uh, he's I mean, he's found himself in a tricky spot on environmental issues, uh, sometimes a little bit at odds with the centerpiece of his own party. And then another bill here that is a potential veto. This is about criminal record screening practices. We know it as ban the box. This is a bill that would prohibit some private employers from asking an applicant about their criminal history at any time before the first person interview. We actually had a really great um, summer conference session uh, talking about this and advocates in support of this really um, tried to reframe it as it's not so much banning the box as it is moving the box right. um, that and you shouldn't. The, the box is like on, on an employment application. Have do you have a criminal record? Right. Right. So, yes, yeah. exactly. So like a little box. You have to put a check <laughs> mark in that box. But that you really shouldn't use um, criminal history er- as early in the screening process. Um, effectively making it so that those um, individuals can't even apply for the job, but to move it back farther in the hiring process for consideration. So the idea here is that, you know, I see your application and I see you have a criminal history, I throw it out. But at least if you come in and I get to meet you and talk to you, that may weigh less on me as it would have if I was just looking at a piece of paper. Right. So this bill was also opposed by the business community, and I'm sure they'll be pushing the governor to veto it. I would think so. All right. This next one, the two-person train crew. This has been around for a long time. It's it's a bill that essentially would require trains carrying freight to have at least two crew members if the train is being operated, quote, in the same rail corridor as a high-speed passenger or commuter train, unquote. <laughs> the, the funny thing is none of us are involved in railroad policy. And I don't want to be. But, it, I, but I, I, I mean, I, I'm sure you get a heavy dose of this. But if you're in Annapolis and you do any work in the committees that do labor stuff, you can't help but hear about the railroad bill, right? Yes. This, this right. bill, right? And then you're like, who knew this would be such a hot topic? <laughs> but um, it surely is. Um, and I spent a lot of time in finance where these labor issues get heard. And so, yeah, you're sitting there listening and realizing, wow, this this is an intense one. Like, who are all these people? What, what bill are they here for? And then you realize, oh, the, oh, the oh, rail bill. Totally not a county issue. Then, then you can really? tell your poor, like, you know, your poor <laughs> HR director. It's like, oh, by the way, like our day, it's not going to be over at three. Like, let's you know, cancel dinner. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be that kind of day. Hope yeah. you brought your snacks. Right. <laughs> so so this bill was opposed by the rail industry. They say it will be very costly and I'm sure they'll pressure the governor right. to veto it. Also raising one of our one of the the hallmarks of the Conduit Street podcast and that is interstate commerce issues that railroads oh, yeah. are generally not confined to the state of Maryland. So do you suddenly and one of, it's always one of the arguments is right. oh we have to we have to have a guy standing at the Delaware border to hop on so we can have a two person crew while you go through <laughs> Maryland. So, you know. Yeah, there's a lot of debate <laughs> about the interstate commerce clause and, and exactly that. Right. Like what are we supposed to do? Just stop the train and right. at the border? Okay, so the next one here, this is an interesting one, same day voter registration. And this is interesting because this was a ballot issue in last year's election. Voters approved it overwhelmingly. So why would the governor veto this bill that was passed by the General Assembly? The voters told them they had to pass a bill. I I mean – 
this is this is one where you know Kevin, you're our policy lead on elections issues, mm-hmm. and you you work pretty closely with mm-hmm. the county level election administrators, and you know they raised I think a lot of nuts and bolts issues with us trying to say we're worried that this bill is going to be really difficult to administer. I mean, no one wants mistakes Correct. in the management of elections. And that's the kind of stuff they raised, right? Absolutely. The, just the administrative burden piece of it, there will be costs associated here. We supported this bill with an amendment for the state to provide the funding to the counties <laughs> who administer these elections locally uh, to, to, to implement same-day voter registration. That amendment was unsuccessful. Nevertheless, this is something that the General Assembly has to do, and essentially what they were doing with this bill was writing the regs, figuring out the process. But, I mean, Michael and Natasha, do you think the governor would veto same-day voter registration? He seems like a governor that cares a lot about polls and and what people care about. Right. Well, I mean, the ultimate poll is you put something on the actual ballot and have actual – like all the voters, not just some selected sample, but all the voters got to weigh this issue at least nominally and overwhelmingly said, yeah, we should open the doors for this. I think it'd be it'd be a tough sell for this governor to say no. You know, I have a complicated argument why they got it wrong. Yeah, I'd bet against that. You know, <laughs> I do too. So the the drug affordability board we've talked about this as well. This is about prescription drugs. Natasha, this is right up your alley. Does this seem to you like a potential veto candidate? I'd bet against this veto as well. Um, so the final bill, as we've discussed, was um, a bit more slimmed down. I mean, they still do have the authority, but it doesn't go. Um, um, as far as the original bill, it's a little less controversial. Um, additionally, when um, uh, a similar bill was passed um, in previous sessions, he didn't veto it. Okay, so that one, you know, it's been stripped down enough to where maybe some of the the opposition has waned a bit and maybe the governor will just let this go into law without signing it. And the support on this issue is really strong. When you talk about prescription drug costs, it's another issue where um, just generally with the public, um, people are feeling very strongly about high prescription drug costs at the moment. Yeah, I'm not sure you'd want to stand out at a podium and talk about vetoing a bill that would help people save money on their prescription drugs. It <laughs> might not be the best selling point. Okay, so those are a handful of bills that we think could be potential vetoes. Um, let's close it out here. I mean, I have one little uh, story to, to close with, Michael. You and I went down to Wicomico County yesterday to talk about Kerwin, and we sat in front of the council, and they made mention of the podcast. So I just want <laughs> to give a shout out to Councilmember Josh Hastings. You are always invited on the show. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, come down whenever. We'll come to you do an intro. But uh, but thanks for the mention, and we hope that you're listening down to Wicomico. Well, that's I mean, it's good outreach for us uh, to have a member jurisdiction. I mean, th- I mean, every county is in the middle of the budget process right now, and what they were trying trying to say is we know the state is sort of reframing education aid. There's a piece in this year's bill, but they're considering big stuff for down the road. So let's, let's bring in Mako. There, there are eyes and ears in Annapolis and let's have them walk us through the education proposals. So, you know, the bill that's passed and also what seems to be coming. And, you know, we got, we got a, a pretty good chunk of their time and attention. I think it was a productive conversation. I do too. Natasha, anything you're looking forward to over the next week or two? Are you going down to Guam? I know that you're a regular <laughs> on the pod and you're very excited about Guam. I mean, is there any, any vacation to Guam in your future? No, not to Guam. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but a uh, vacation for sure. Okay, excellent. So we will leave it there. If you enjoy the podcast, please give us a like, subscribe. It really helps get our message out. Until next week, we'll talk to you soon. Yeah.